Amen. We're continuing our series on the life of David, the warring worshiper of God. And uh, we're in 1 Samuel chapter 19 this morning. 1 Samuel chapter 19. We're going to be looking at this chapter from this perspective. This is a great chapter that teaches us about the providence of God. If you've been a Christian for any length of time or been around church or in church or heard Bible teaching, you've probably heard that phrase before. And some of you, like me, may have wondered for a long time, what's that mean? The providence of God. Let me try to define it in some way. The providence of God means that God is in every detail of our lives. That's in essence what it means. From the biggest detail down to the smallest, minutest detail, God is in every detail. And we're, we're going to see that this morning as we come to 1 Samuel 19. The other thing we're going to see in this chapter, like in our own lives, is that the providence of God can lead us to difficult places, hard places. Because in this chapter, there's going to be four attempts on David's life in this one chapter. Four times Saul's going to try to kill him. And what we're going to see in this chapter is that God intervenes in all four times and prevents Saul from carrying out his murderous plot against David. God wants to use this chapter in our lives to encourage us, to strengthen us, to give us comfort, to know that there's not any big thing or any small thing that's somehow going to get past God before it gets to us. That God's got us. He always has and he always will. So that's why God is always saying, you don't have to worry. Or going back to life, you don't have to fret. You don't have to be anxious about anything or, or uh, get all upset because I've always got you. You just need to trust me. Now, at the beginning of this chapter, what we see is this. Saul is putting out a contract, if you will, on David's life. And obviously, anyone that can accomplish the task of murdering David is going to come into favor with Saul and also probably become a very wealthy individual. What I'd like to do today is to go down through this chapter and see each one of these interventions and how it plays out. Because 
in every intervention that God is in in David's life, God uses a different way, a different method of saving David. Because God is the Lord of hosts. He has everything and everyone in his universe at his disposal. And he can use anyone or anything to save us, to rescue us, to deliver us at any time. And you're going to see that today. He never uses the same method or means of deliverance twice. So you'll notice there as we begin 1 Samuel 19. It says, Then Saul told his son Jonathan and his servants to kill David. Now we already know from the chapter before that God has already brought Jonathan, Saul's son, and David into this very unique and rare friendship. They have become kindred spirits. They have cut a covenant of friendship with one another. And so we're going to see that the first means of how God intervenes, if you will, to save David is through a friend, a friend named Jonathan. Notice a couple things about this friendship and this intervention that happens that God uses Jonathan and the friendship of Jonathan and David here. First of all, we are informed at the end of verse 1 again that Saul's son Jonathan liked David very much. That doesn't even begin to do it justice. I'll start with this. This is a reminder that you can love somebody but not necessarily like somebody. Jonathan not only loved David, he liked David. There's a difference, right? This word speaks about the fact that Jonathan found in David someone that always brought him continual joy and delight and pleasure. I mean, we all know that we have friendships and acquaintances and relationships that, you know, we get together with folks and, and it, can, it can be nice. I mean, obviously, there's some folks that you get together with and, and you leave their presence and not that you maybe don't want to get together with them ever, but when you leave their presence, you're drained. They just suck the life right out of you, right? And, and there's times for that, so to speak. But there's other people that you spend time in their presence and no matter what you're going through or what you're dealing with, you, you sort of have a skip in your step when you leave their presence. You, you're, you're sort of refreshed. That's Jonathan's perspective on David and his friendship. That it was always a joy, a pleasure, a delight to spend time with David. And this word liked also speaks about the fact that, that David was Jonathan's desire. He, he pursued David. He, he loved this friendship and he loved this friend. And God brought them together for many different reasons, but obviously one here is that God was going to use Jonathan to intervene on David's behalf. So you'll notice verse 2. After Jonathan heard about the contract that his own father put out on David, he says to David, my father Saul's trying to kill you, so be careful tomorrow morning and find a hiding place and stay in seclusion. 
Great advice. And I want to go back now to that phrase, a hiding place. We're going to come back to that at the end of our message. Because you and I all need to make sure that we find a hiding place in our life. And the greatest hiding place you and I could ever find in our life is God himself. You're going to hear this at the end of the message, but in Psalm 32, verse 7, David writes, you are my hiding place, speaking of God. And we'll talk about what does that mean later on. By the way, before I keep on going, I again want to remind us this friendship with Jonathan and David was not one-sided. I mean, it appears that way in, in much of the, the uh, passages on Jonathan and David's friendship, but we know that David thought the same of Jonathan as Jonathan thought of David because any great relationship is never one-sided. It's mutual. And David had just as much love for Jonathan as Jonathan had for David, and it found just as much joy and pleasure and delight in Jonathan as Jonathan did to David. So Jonathan says, David, find a hiding place. And, and if you know the story of David and all those years that he was running for his life and hiding, that he used those caves and those crevices and and, and those places up in the mountains of, of Israel and around Israel to hide from Saul and his men. So a hiding place can be a literal hiding place, but it can also be a figurative hiding place. And in our case, it should always be the Lord. He's both. A literal and physical hiding place. He says in verse 3, I will go out and stand beside my father in the field, where you are, verse 3, and I will speak about you to my father. And when I find out what the problem is, I will let you know. So notice in verse 4, Jonathan spoke on David's behalf to his father Saul. Among many other things that this friend was doing for his friend, one of the things that we see here then in verse 4 is this. Jonathan was becoming David's advocate. He was going to speak to his father and basically intervene and be the mediator to figure out what's going on and to try to talk his father out of murdering David. A great friend is not only going to be a friend, a great friend is always going to be your advocate. Someone who has your back. Someone who will take up for you. And let me say this. Let's not forget what's happening here because this is a really important principle that many Christians, we need to hear because we don't hear it much, even in church, and that is that family is not the end-all, be-all. God is the end-all, be-all. And you'll notice what's happening here. Jonathan 
is taking up for his friend against his own father. Why? Because his father may be family, but his father is standing on the wrong side of God. There are times in our life where our even relationship with God is going to be tested. Do we side with family just because they're family, or do we side on the side of God and sometimes have to stand even against family members? And that's what Jonathan was doing. Jonathan was like, my dad's wrong in this case. And I've already committed myself that I'm standing with you, David, because you are God's anointed. Not my father. You are God's anointed. And so I'm going to stand in this situation with you. In a sense, an advocate is is like we would think of as a lawyer, somebody who's going to defend us, right? And the reason that this is such an important principle, and I wanted to bring it out this morning, is the Bible tells us that we have an advocate. John tells us in 1 John 2, 1, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. We have one who will always stand up for us, who will always have our back, who will always defend us. And you might be saying, well, Does Jesus have to defend himself against the Father with us? No. Remember what the Bible says about the devil? One of the main things the Bible says about the devil is he is our continual accuser. Always accusing us. Always slandering us. You see instances of this, whether with Job or with the prophet Uh, Joshua in the book of Zechariah, not the same Joshua that the book of Joshua is about, but another who was the high priest, where Satan is accusing and slandering, and where the Lord says, no, 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 they're mine. They're forgiven. They are not standing in their own righteousness. They're standing there in my righteousness, and I'm taken up for them. Be gone, Satan. We have to realize that that's what Jesus does for us. He's doing what Jonathan did here. He has our backs. He's defending. He's representing. He's mediating. He's coming between us and our spiritual enemy because our spiritual enemy will always try to throw accusations and slanders up at us. And Jesus Christ is the one who stands up for his people. When you've got a friend like Jonathan and David had, you're going to stand up for them. You're going to have their back always. And they're never going to have to worry which side you're going to come down on. Because you can imagine, I mean, humanly speaking, David could be like, you know what? Can I really trust Jonathan here? Maybe he's part of the plot. Maybe he's going to tell me something and I'm going to find myself, you know, dead tomorrow because Jonathan couldn't be trusted. David never gave that a thought. David knew he could trust his friend, even against his own father. 
He said to him, verse 4, the king should not sin against his servant David, for he has not sinned against you. On the contrary, his actions have been very beneficial for you. These, these are the words of Jonathan to his father. He's like, what's up, dad? Why are you trying to kill this guy? He's, he's done nothing to you. In fact, in verse 5, he risked his own life when he struck down the Philistine and the Lord gave all Israel a great victory. And when you saw it, you were happy. So why would you sin against innocent blood by putting David to death for no reason? Again, God, though, is in the details. God is the one who had Jonathan in just the right place, perfect timing, everything, to be able not only to let David know what was going on behind closed doors that David would have never known about otherwise, but to stand up for David at a very significant and strategic time. By the way, in verse 5, I also want to point this out. Notice that the Lord gave all Israel a great victory. When we talked about that victory that David had over the giant Goliath, I was saying the battle that one person was willing to fight profited many others. And remember, I encouraged us how sometimes you and I have to be willing to fight a battle that no one else is willing to fight, not just for our own blessing and benefit, but for the blessing and benefit of others. And that's exactly what Jonathan is reminding Saul of when, when David slew Goliath. David's victories were Israel's victories, Dad. You benefited. All of Israel benefited. Because the victory that God gave to David over Goliath, it blessed all of us. What happens many times in a, in a wrong way is that Saul had gotten to a place in his life where it was all about him. All he could think about was seeing everything in life through the lens of self. He could not see anymore the bigger picture. And here's his own son who has to remind him of the bigger picture. There's more that's going on here, Dad, than just you. I know you're upset that the kingdom is slipping through your hands and that, you know, David is God's anointed and one day he's going to take your place. And here's also his son who willingly is showing the selfless, sacrificial nature that a person who follows God should by, in a sense, remember, stripping himself of all his royal robes and giving them to David. And here's his father trying to hold on to power that he didn't have and really didn't earn or whatever in the first place. It was all God that gave it to him. And now Jonathan is trying to open up the very selfish eyes of his father to see, do you not see that this is about more than just you? How sad, Dad, that you're the king. You're supposed to be leading others. You're supposed to be maybe leading us even in humility. And here you are. It's all about you, and you're forgetting what God is doing here in a much bigger way. That's a, obviously a caution to all of us. But notice then in this first intervention, Saul accepted, at least briefly, Jonathan's advice and said, as surely as the Lord lives, he will not be put to death. So Jonathan called David, told him all these things, and Jonathan brought David to Saul and he served him as he had done formerly. 
By the way, how did David serve Saul as he did formerly? As a worshiper, playing the lyre, as we're going to see. So here at the end of verse 7, you have David as the worshiper. But now we come to verses 8 through 10 where we see intervention number 2. And once again there was war. And David went out to fight the Philistines. Now notice, as a warrior to do battle. So at the end of verse 7, you have David as the worshiper. At at the beginning of verse 8, you have David as the warrior. And this is why we titled this series, The Worshiping Warrior of God. Because when you think about David, that's how you think about him in that context. He was a worshiping warrior of God. Those were the things that really defined David in his life. We all need to ask ourselves the question, what defines us? When other people talk about us, when they think about us, what do they say about us? What what are the things that stand out about us? Especially in relationship to our God. And notice when David went out, he defeated them thoroughly. How could he have such victories over and over and over again? I'll tell you why. It goes back to last week's or two weeks ago's chapter, verse uh, chapter 18 of 1 Samuel. If you look at 1 Samuel 18, just very briefly with me, in verse 12, 14, and 28, you see this phrase that I talked about a couple weeks ago. The Lord was with David. 1 Samuel 18, 12, the Lord was with him. 1 Samuel 18, 14, the Lord was with him. 1 Samuel 18, 28, the Lord was with David. That's why he won victory after victory. How can you and I defeat our enemies thoroughly and win victory after victory after victory when the Lord is with us? That's how. Because we've already learned the battle's the Lord's. And if we're following the Lord and we're doing what the Lord wants and the Lord is on our side and we're on the Lord's side, then there's no one or nothing that can stand in our way. We will mow down our enemies and and rise over and overcome any obstacle or challenge that's in our way. Because our God's never lost a battle ever. And he never will. In fact, they even ran away, the Philistines, from David in verse 8. But then notice verse 9. An evil spirit from the Lord came upon Saul, and he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand while David was playing the lyre, and Saul tried to nail David to the wall once again with the spear. But notice, God intervened in his providence, and David escaped from Saul's presence, and the spear drove into the wall. David escaped quickly that night. couple things. David was known as the worshiping warrior of God. When you think of Saul, what do you think of? Spear. He was a man who threw spears at others because he always had a spear in his hand. And when he got upset, what was his solution to solving problems? Throwing spears at other people. Now, like in the first intervention, notice God uses a different method here. He doesn't use a person. He just supernaturally, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, changes the trajectory of the spear. Because we know Saul was a great warrior. Saul was not a bad spear thrower. I'm sure if everything would have been 
remaining the same and God would have not intervened, that spear would have went right through David's heart and nailed him to the wall. But God made sure, because it wasn't David's time yet, because God is providential in every detail of our lives, that God was going to make sure that that spear did not touch David. You and I don't have to worry about the spears that others throw at us, because if, if God doesn't want that spear to penetrate us in any way, whether it be words or deeds or, what, or even a, a literal physical weapon, it's not going to happen because God is providential in his people's lives, and he is providential in everyone's life down to the minutest detail. Now, I know that this detail doesn't apply to me so much, but I use other details to do it. That's why Jesus even said, God even knows the number of hairs on your head. Now, obviously, for me, that doesn't work very well, but the point Jesus is making is God knows every little minute detail of you physically, emotionally, and spiritually. That's what it means when we talk about the providence of God. And in the first intervention, God used a friend, Jonathan. In the second intervention, he simply just sort of turned that spear to go another way. And by the way, I love this word escape. It, here's how I want you to picture it. God made David like melting butter, and he just slipped through Saul's fingers. Think about that when you think about this word escape. In fact, this concept is repeated over in the New Testament. If you remember the story where they were going to take Jesus out to the edge of the hill and they were going to throw him off the cliff and the Bible says it wasn't his time yet and he literally just passed through. Did you ever wonder about that? I don't know about you, but that, that amazes me. It's like all these people are ready to throw Jesus off the cliff, and somehow what happens? Does God just turn them all into stone for a few minutes, and Jesus just walks past them all, just waving as he goes by? Or does Jesus just sort of turn invisible and just they don't know where? I don't know, but I know just like with David, what it means is that if God wants to, he can make us all like butter, and we can just slip through the fingers of our enemies because that's who our God is. And if it's not our time, it's not going to happen, because God has everything at his disposal because he's the Lord of hosts. Intervention number three, verse 11. You would think your home is your refuge, right? As we used to say, my home is my castle. If I'm going to feel safe, it's going to be in my home. Well, guess what? In verse 11, Saul sends a kill squad to David's house to kill him. And now God is going to use David's wife, who, by the way, is also the daughter of Saul, whose name is Michal. That's how you pronounce her name in Hebrew. It's Michal. And David's wife, Michal, says, you got to save yourself tonight. And so verse 12, Michal lowered David through the window, and he ran away and again escaped from Saul's presence. Like Rahab did for the spies and like the disciples did for Paul when they lowered him down from the window, that's exactly what David's wife, Michal, did for David. And once again, God shows up the third time Saul's tried to kill him in this chapter, and God intervenes and prevents it from happening. 
One more intervention. Verse 18. Intervention number four. David escapes and runs away to Samuel in Ramah and told him everything that Saul had done to him. Now, I don't know exactly, but I sort of suspect the conversation when he got to Samuel, the old elder prophet, went something like this. Because David was still a fairly young man. Samuel, what in the world is God doing? I'm the anointed future king of Israel, and in the last couple days, I've had to run for my life three times and escape the clutches of Saul. And I can only imagine that elder statesman, if you will, spiritually, that great old prophet Samuel probably looked at David and honestly said, I don't know what God's doing, David, but I know this. He knows what he's doing, and you can trust him. That's the response that sometimes we have to have when we look at situations and circumstances. And, and because, again, God's providence sometimes leads us to hard, difficult places. And we don't have the answer because God's ways are higher than our ways. But here's what we know for sure. God knows what he's doing. And God makes no mistakes. And we can trust God even in the hard, difficult places. I mean, obviously, I loved all the songs that we worshiped to this morning, but I especially thought of Praise You in the Storm when I thought about what was happening here. Because sometimes we go, God, I know you're in the details of my life. That's part of the problem. Why are you allowing this to happen? We can't always answer that. But that's why our faith has to be strong, and we have to trust the Lord when we don't have the answers. So notice what happens. Saul finds out where David is at and sends messengers, verse 20, and they're going to go and capture David and bring him back and kill him. So three times, Saul sends messengers up to capture David, and notice what happens every time. Verse 20, the spirit of the Lord literally overwhelms Saul's messengers, and they are prevented from capturing David. They are so overcome by the spirit of God that they begin to prophesy. And Saul when he hears this, sends two more, again, squads of soldiers up to try to capture David. And every time, they, they can't do what Saul has instructed them to do because literally the Spirit of God is overwhelming these men and they can't do what Saul wants them to do. So, verse 22, Saul's like, you know, I'm sure has the attitude, if you want something done right, you got to do it yourself, Right? So Saul goes up to do the very same thing. I'll get him myself. And when Saul gets there, notice verse 23. The Spirit of God comes upon him. And he comes upon Saul so strongly that the Bible says in verse 24, he is stripping off his royal robes and he's laying there naked prophesying before Samuel. You know what's happening there, right? The Lord is humbling Saul because Saul won't humble himself. Because that's what happens. 
That's why the Bible tells us we better humble ourselves before God or else God will humble us. Saul was not a humble man. Saul was all about himself. And God was bringing Saul down and frustrating his purposes and showing Saul, I'm in control, Saul. You're not. And you can try for David's life all you want to. I will intervene every time. And you would think after all these failed attempts that Saul would be like, okay, God, I give up. We'll do it your way. No, no, doesn't happen as we're going to see in the weeks to come. But what I want us to see here today from 1 Samuel 19 is that this chapter is all about the providence of God, that God is involved in the details of our life. No detail too big, no detail too small. And four times in this chapter, David's life was threatened. And every time, God intervened. Sometimes it was through a friend. Sometimes it was through his wife. Sometimes it was just through the Spirit of God. And sometimes it was just through his own sovereignty of turning a spear and taking it another way. But however God chose to do it, God made sure that Saul's plans did not come about. I hope that that brings you very practical comfort and encouragement and gives you strength in your life. If you truly believe that God, your God, is providential, then he's got you, and he's always got you. And there's never a second of your life where he doesn't got you. And he's watching over you. And nothing's going to happen to you without at first passing through him. So in closing this morning, I'd like to direct your attention to a verse of Scripture that David writes in a psalm. And that's actually going to be our meditation verse and memorization verse for the coming week. It is Psalm 32, verse 7. Psalm 32, verse 7. I told you we'd come back to that verse at the end. And here's what David writes. You are my hiding place. And when David writes that, that is written in the present tense, meaning, God, as I have even seen in my life, you are continually my hiding place. Now, especially for those of you that maybe grew up or have lived in the Midwest of our own country, you will especially appreciate what that word, those words hiding place means. It means literally a storm shelter of protection. Some of you may have been in a storm shelter at some point in your life. God is saying to us, I am your storm shelter of protection. You can hide in me anytime, and you can know that I'm covering you. Because the other concept of a hiding place is that God, in a sense, has his people covered at all times. He's saying, I've got you. And David realized through the providence of God in his own life of all these times that Saul tried to kill him and he came up short, God, you are my hiding place. I can trust in you. But David doesn't end there. He goes on in Psalm 32, verse 7 to say, you protect me in times of distress. Let's talk about the word distress for just a minute. 
It means when the world is closing in on you. It speaks about that pressure that that starts to press in on you. It's literally a word in the Hebrew that speaks about narrow, tight places where you feel like you're just about ready to be crushed. David says, I realize, God, you protect me in those times. And by the way, the word protect doesn't mean protect from. It means to preserve and maintain through something. Because we know even in David's life, God didn't protect David from all the dangers. God protected him through the dangers or in the dangers and the distresses of life. And that's what David learned. God doesn't keep me from trials, but God will preserve me and maintain me through my trials. And then I love the way it ends. David says, you surround me with shouts or literally songs of joy celebrating my deliverance. There's a couple times in the Bible that the Bible teaches us that God sings Can you imagine what it would be like and what it will be like to hear God sing one day? Because the verse that Nicole referenced, Zephaniah 3.17 and Psalm 32, verse 7, both teach that God sings, and not just sings, sings over us, over you. And he does so with joy. For the joy that you bring God, he is encompassing you and surrounding you with songs of joy. Whew. I don't know if that, if that doesn't give you some goosebumps and chills, nothing will. See, God wants his people to realize, as I move through every day of my life, my God is surrounding me and encompassing me with songs not only because of the joy that I bring him, but because he wants me to have confidence in his deliverance of me. And that's what it means. He is surrounding me with songs celebrating my deliverance, your deliverance. Because he wants us to know, I've got you. I'm singing over you. I'm surrounding you with songs. I want you to instill your confidence in me as your hiding place, as your rescuer, as your deliverer, as your savior. Nothing is going to happen to you without it passing through me. In fact, I had to smile when Nicole was ending her prayer before the message this morning because she was talking about the God sandwich. There's a verse in the book of Colossians. My wife will perk up on this one. Chapter 3, verse 3, where it says, we have died, meaning we've died to our own life, we've died to sin, we've died to self as Christians, and our life is hidden with Christ in God. Hidden, hiding place. Hidden with Christ in God. So literally, that's true. We are in a God sandwich. When you and I are saved, we are placed in Christ. 
And as if that wouldn't be enough, since he's the king of kings and lord of lords, then it says, oh, by the way, here's an extra hide. God then hides Christ in him. We are surrounded by God at all times. So God is saying to all of us today, you may be in a hard, difficult place right now. You may be going through it like David, but you've got to understand something. I'm a God of providence. I've got every detail of your life in my hands. There is no detail too big or too small for me. And I've got you at all times. There's no one or nothing that can even come close to touching you or, or messing with you that doesn't come through the hands of God first. And just like with David, we might not understand why, but we do know this. God knows what he's doing. And God can be trusted. Will you trust the Lord today with the details of your life? I'm going to ask Nicole and our worship team to come now. And I'm going to ask you to stand with me and join as we close our time in prayer. And I just, I just feel inspired to just encourage all of us. You know, these last couple years with all the turmoil and unsettledness and, you know, everything with it, God wants his people to realize, I don't care what comes across the face of the earth. I don't care what your country is. I don't care. You've got to trust me for the details. Because nothing's going to touch you. Nothing's going to affect you that doesn't first pass through me. So let's trust him today. Father, we thank you that, Lord, even today you used a story over 3,000 years old now, God, that is still as relevant today for us as it was back then. Here's a young man that in a very short span of his life, his life was threatened four different times. And yet every time you showed up big and you intervened because it wasn't his time. And God, if you do that for David... We've got to believe you'll do that for us. And you, you do that for us because you're the same God. And you love us just as much as you love David. So, Lord, help us to trust you, God, like we've never trusted you before, to yield to you, God, and to realize, Lord, that you are providential. There is no detail of our life outside of your control and outside of your care. You've got us every second of our life. So, Lord, may we worship a God who's got us every second of our life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.